Aloha, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to our Undoing Radio. I am your host, Jeremy Vaney, and uh, this episode, I have our returning champion, me pal, me buddy, the best microbiologist uh, I'll probably ever know, Tyler Coke John. Tyler, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Are you sure? I am. Okay, good. Uh, so I wanted to talk about tardigrades and see where this launches us off to, pun intended. Um, I thought that this season was going to be a potpourri of stuff, but I actually started off talking about violence prior to the insurrection, funny enough. Uh, and now it all seems to sort of have a flavor of being about various forms of violence that we the people do. So before we get to that, uh, tardigrades, why do I want to talk about them? Well, um, they seem to be everywhere these days. <laughs> Tyler, what are tardigrades and why are they important? They are um, interesting. I, I don't know if they're necessarily the most important animals on the planet, but uh, they have captured the imagination and interest of biologists because they have this uh, incredible to withstand very harsh conditions uh, without apparent any, apparently any uh, problems. So they can be um, dried up, heated, irradiated. They're just very tough. They're little guys. Uh, they're actually um, microscopic. They really weren't uh, noted until people had microscopes to uh, define them. But uh, they live in uh, strange places. Um, if you remember uh, Dr. Tarr, my colleague Dr. Tarr, she studied them, and uh, she says one of their favorite places to exist is in moss, in the water, uh, in uh, little damp, mossy areas. And uh, they um, uh, are quite happy in there. They're largely plant eaters, although there are some that will um, attack and eat other water bears, uh, interestingly enough. And tardigrades are also known as water bears. Uh, because of the way they move. They're kind of slow and lumbering, like a bear. And the uh, first people that looked at them made that notation. Um, how big are they compared to anything else microscopic? Like when, when we say microscopic, there's there's what? There's atoms, there's cells, there's stuff. <laughs> like how big is a tardigrade? Stuff. You know? Stuff, yeah. No, that's a good question. Uh, if you uh, look on the, the scale... Well, these are actually uh, small animals, and so in the microscopic world, uh, they're sizable. Uh, they are, um, if you know exactly what you're looking at and the illumination is just right, uh, most of them, or a lot of them, you can see as little specks moving around. Uh, so they're about the size of, um, oh, the biggest would be a millimeter, which would be pretty sizable for uh, a microbe, but um, they're tiny. And so uh, they really will escape notice most of the time without some kind of uh, optical aid to see them. Uh, they, um, if you're familiar with um, a, a bug like uh, Paramecium, protozoan, uh, those, those are about um, two-tenths of a, micro, a millimeter in size, I should say, and uh, very quick compared to our tardigrades. Tardigrades are slow, and uh, the... Um, uh, guys are, um, there's a, a sort of a soup of these things. They're much, much larger than bacteria, enormously larger than viruses. 
But as uh, protozoans go, they're, they're kind of midland. I guess on the, some of them are on the big side, but they're kind of the average protozoan size, which means that they're largely inconspicuous to the unaided eye. So tardigrades, uh, they are a hardy beast. They can live in space or they can, what? Uh, what do they do in space? They don't live, right? But they, do they go into some sort of hi- hibernation like a bear? You know, uh, they can. And uh, what I would say is they, they don't really live where, where there isn't liquid water. Uh, and so they can tolerate being in outer space conditions for a while. Not not indefinitely, but your point is well taken. They are extremely hardy, and they can uh, form a, a resting stage or a hibernating stage, you want to call it that, uh, that's known as a ton. And what, what that refers to is the fact that they look like little barrels or casks. And so when they um, hit, when the water begins to dry up, for example, uh, conditions become normal longer amenable for them to wander around and, and eat things, they kind of pull in their legs and uh, sort of uh, dry themselves out. Uh, they sort of make um, trellose, uh, a sugar, and they will um, protect themselves in this way. So at that point, they become super resistant to a lot of stresses. Now, a lot of microbes do this. Uh, protozoans will form resting stages called cysts. Uh, bacteria can, and other uh, organisms can form form uh, spores, uh, which can be very tough. And their, their methods are somewhat analogous to what the tardigrades do. But for um, a metazoan, a multiple-celled animal, this is pretty remarkable. And that, that has definitely caught biologists' eye. Okay. And so now we're going to switch gears and talk about something that as I was asking you about it last night, or yesterday afternoon, I guess, uh, it got more and more interesting, which is, um, to my knowledge, from what I thought I read of an article, uh, Israel, and whatever that means, the government or a corporation therein, but someone in Israel, uh, I thought I had read they accidentally released tardigrades on the moon, which seems like that would be a pretty big story that just got covered over by everything else <laughs> going on in the world, and especially in this country. Um, but it was not an accident. Can you tell us what you know about that incident? It, it was an accident, and yet at the same time, it, it was not. Uh, there was a, a contest, oh boy, 10 years ago, I think, this, a, a contest for uh, private entities basically – to uh, land a device on the moon, a small device on the moon. And uh, this comp- these people got interested and formed a, a company to try to accomplish this. And uh, they didn't quite make the t- timeline originally. But the, the idea of landing a small device on the moon, uh, basically demonstrating technology to do this uh, rather simply, uh, intrigued them. And one of the things that they had gotten um, kind of aligned with was another organization, um, the ARC, A-R-C-H is how it's spelled, but it's ARC Foundation. And one of their goals is to sort of have a second Earth. In other words, um, store uh, the, uh, the products of humankind uh, and also maybe some genetic information and uh, stuff like tardigrades. Uh, and so when they uh, launched the, uh, the, the company, it's called Space IL, a team 
teamed with SpaceX, Elon Musk's company, to get their device launched. And they very cleverly uh, managed to maneuver it to the moon in such a way that they needed relatively little fuel. And that's how they're able to keep the size of this, of this device, the lander, down. And on the lander, they incorporated um, some information and some tardigrades. Uh, among other things, uh, some genetic materials, for example. The uh, probe, the, the, the lander, made it to the moon. Unfortunately, it didn't land. And so the, um, the, the release of the tardigrades uh, on the moon was uh, unintentional. But it, they were part of the cargo, if you want to call it that, of the uh, demonstration. So it was a really fascinating sort of private enterprise uh, I guess, uh, um, project. Uh, and it illustrates that you don't have to really be a government necessarily, although I think Space IL, the, the company that um, did the hardcore work of the, of the landing, uh, has ties to the Israeli uh, government. The, um, the project really was a, a private enterprise. Nonetheless, it's still expensive. And, and the lander, although small by the standards, that we would ordinarily think of, still weighed over a ton. Uh, and it's, it's kind of interesting. It stood about five feet tall or so. Uh, but unfortunately, some, something went wrong. What that something was is uh, unclear. But it did uh, basically crash on the moon and release uh, the uh, stored items. Uh, it's not clear what their status is. Did the tardigrades survive? They, they very likely could be, although inactive, because there won't be any water there. Uh, and the lander itself really had a very limited uh, lifetime, anticipated lifetime on the moon to begin with. So it was a demonstration project. So yes and no, uh, it was intentional, but it really wasn't the way that it ended. Space ill. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I, I don't know Almost what perfect. That, if it stands for Israeli lander. I, I don't know where that came from. Uh, so I, I just I couldn't find it. I was looking around for it, and I just did not uh, find that. Maybe somebody else will know. Well, how does this rank as problematic as compared to the possibility that we sent our own microbes to Mars? Uh, not at all is the way I think the consensus would be. And, and the logic is that, um, well, first of all, we should, we should point out no treaties or laws were broken by this action. That it is perfectly within the scope or the understanding of the Outer Space Treaty, 1967 or so, about how we will prevent forward and backward contamination uh, from space flight, space travel, and space exploration. Uh, nothing, nothing was done that is not allowed. And the moon and bodies that are deemed to have very little, um, I guess, hope for living forms, life forms, to... Um, to prosper, to survive there, uh, there's no water, no, no usable water, conditions are really harsh. Uh, it's not really considered a, a problem. Mars, on the other hand, may have, have um, still may have uh, a biosphere. And there are places where there still may be water. Uh, and so uh, Mars, Enceladus, Europa, uh, places that perhaps are, are thought to be uh, sites where liquid water could exist and living forms could have um, basically appeared are treated as in a much different category. Uh, whether you're going there, we take great pains to make sure that we don't contaminate 
And, uh, and if you intend to bring samples back, we have to handle them very carefully so we don't inadvertently contaminate the earth and do war of the worlds. So we, um, and there's different standards for, for each, but yeah, Mars is, is a place where uh, we do want to be careful. Uh, and in particular, what we do not want to do is contaminate the place so that we can't tell what happened. We, the scientists want pristine samples. And they don't want to have to rediscover that, boy, Earth life uh, contaminated all of our instruments. So we're trying to be very cautious and uh, make sure that we can figure out, was there a second genesis of life on Mars? This would be a very interesting scientific question, and we want to answer it uh, accurately. Well, the thing I love about you is that you sound so calm, cool, collected, rational, and doctor-like, because you are a doctor, and, and by and large, you're all those things. Uh, so let's put them to the test right now. <laughs> oh! Uh, so... Okay, what you're talking about there is like protocols and regulations for things like this. But I don't know. Did you see? Um, I had a little Twitter dialogue with somebody last night about uh, he was posting about that UFOs aren't about little green men. It's about whatever this is, this intelligence invading our airspace or violating our sovereign airspace. And I just wrote something snarky like, you know, violating in quotes, our in quotes, you know, small mindedness. And, you know, he wrote back something like, well, according to all the definitions, everything I said is true. And then we got into the little back and forth about, well, technically, wouldn't birds say that that's their airspace and we violate it all the time? We Like, we have no problem with that. Um, and then it got me to thinking about about this, about the tardigrades and Mars, uh, because essentially his point of view is that if there were aliens or some other beings to come here, they would see the way that we've uh, set up our government and our society and all that, and they would care if they were kindly beings not to invade our airspace because they would understand our, our protocols. Um, so what you just laid out are protocols for not unleashing microbes into the atmosphere and that sort of thing. But ultimately, is there any conversation about the fact that we're going there in the first place? Like, my point to him ultimately is that, and to everyone, is that the second we hear there's life somewhere or we suspect that there's life somewhere on a planet, we send our junk. And we send, you know, we would send ourselves if we could, but we can't do that yet. So we send our stuff to go figure it out. And that stuff has a certain uh, end date. The gas runs out <laughs> and then it becomes space junk. So we don't care. Like we just suspect there's life. We, is there any conversation about how quote unquote advanced that life is or about what sending our probes there would do if they were a society, just leaving our junk lying around. Is there a conversation about protocols and ethics on that side of the equation or do we just have complete amnesia about that? You're talking uh, it, sort of like it, it, we knew that there was, um, I guess, advanced life, uh, something that we could communicate with. Do is, we is care if there's you? advanced life is my question. Like as soon as we hear there could be life on this planet, we're going to send something. If we can send ourselves, we will. But we expect that aliens coming here wouldn't do the same, right? Like, we don't hold them to the same standard of like, oh, I hear there's life on that planet over there. 
let's send our crap and monitor it. And then their crap comes here and we go, oh, my God, they're in our airspace. They're violating our airspace. Meanwhile, it doesn't even register to them that that's true. Why doesn't it work one? Why does it work one way, not the other? You got a lot of stuff packed in there, Jeremy. And I'm angry about it, Tyler. You hear the passion in my voice. (laughs) Well, so here's the part of the deal is that at this stage, no, we sort of don't care uh, about the invasion aspect of Mars because we we really don't expect to find anything uh, beyond maybe uh, relics, um, leftovers, uh, macromolecules, DNA. Right, but what about uh, like Europa? What about all the other places that we suspect there's life and we're immediately like, ooh, shoot a satellite over there. Shoot a telescope over there. Yeah, uh, it gets... It gets um, uh, complicated r- right away. Uh, the first, if you notice, what we're anticipating is uh, what we would call simpler life forms. That's really not a very good term. But um, things that, uh, like microbes, that we can scoop up and, uh, and study, drag back home, that kind of thing. And, and our approach to them is, is pretty cavalier in some ways, although we are trying uh, scientifically to be careful uh, and we're trying also, uh, it, it, there's the, the benefit that uh, if we keep everything clean, then we won't forward contaminate that world by virtue of being there. Uh, it's difficult. Uh, the, your point, though, about how we've managed the world is an interesting one. You know, I mean, we just basically colonized it and, and taken over and, and created all kinds of mayhem. Uh, and anything that we've wanted to convert to human use, we've just done it. Uh, you know, the only real problems we've had are uh, sometimes we have environments and uh, other creatures and things that stand in our way, and you can see how they've fared. Well, that's so right. It and, doesn't and, bode well and, for it. And with that, I mean, to my mind, it's like we lead with our pollution at this point. Like, you come in, you colonize, you grow, you pollute. Then it's not enough to have polluted the earth, you pollute the atmosphere. It's not enough to pollute that, you gotta pollute the upper atmosphere. Then you gotta bring your junk into outer space. You gotta leave it on the moon, leave it on Mars, you know, build this disposable stuff. And we say it's because, well, we're just not advanced enough to build the thing that could really blah, blah, blah. But it's this mind that doesn't mind is the problem. The mind that doesn't care about that, that sees this forward push not as colonialization, but as progress, which it isn't. It's a, leftover holdover from colonialization it's that same it's that same you know new frontier mentality and with that new frontier mentality we think it would be star trek we think it would be love light and bliss and and uh you know diplomacy and partnerships and things like that but it's not it's our pollution goes first and our not caring about what's over there just our discovery of it is what's first and that's a problem and i i think it's Weird, although perhaps not to be unexpected, that people, at least in the UFO world, who are, you know, have the, the military mentality of like being up in arms about violating our airspace, don't understand that we're doing this right now to other planets. So, and we don't care. We don't care if there's, I mean, we hope and pray that there's not beings like us or, or you know, more advanced or however you want to put that. We pray that it's microbes and stuff like that, or else we can't control it and we can't feel like we're discovering anything. Then we've got to like 
right? We've Because we set up hierarchies of consciousness in our mind, and so if something's higher than us, then we must be slaves at some point or irrelevant. I guess that's the way they put it, right? They Like when they talk about AI or needing an alien in Silicon Valley or, you know, philosophers talk about um, us becoming immediately irrelevant. Um, so that's the way we think about things. That's what we're bringing into outer space. Is that not a problem? Like, why is that not at least right next to protocols about uh, microbes and the such, um, a conversation about the ethics of the nature of our ethics that make us want to go into space in the first place. How about that? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, I would say, yes, it is a problem, and it has been um, occupying the minds of space scientists for quite a while. Over 50 years ago, we had the, the first treaties about how we would approach places like the moon. And, uh, and try not to uh, damage uh, scientifically important places. Uh, the other questions about sort of our mindset, uh, the, the uh, free space enterprise mindset, have become infinitely more complicated because now we have, for the first time ever, private enterprise, not nation states conducting these experiments for private enterprise. So individuals uh, like Elon Musk and, and SpaceX are chomping at the bit to do the first uh, launching of manned, crewed uh, missions to the planet Mars. And uh, actually, uh, a while back, we put something on your blog about devising a zoning plan for Mars, I think is the title. And um, it, it calls into question about, you know, wait, wait, who, who can approve this? And can we say as a nation like the United States, well, no, we, we don't want that, Elon. We, we want you to do this, or we need you to hold back until we get to explore these areas before you start putting our fingerprints, the human fingerprints on there. And, and you're very correct, Jeremy. There's no way. We, we don't travel alone. We, we live, although we don't realize it very often, we live in a complex environment inside and out of us that include a team of microbes and viruses, and they go everywhere with us. We need them. Uh, some of them kill us on occasion. Uh, you don't say. Viruses, for example. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we, we're, we're never without them. We never go anywhere alone. And so we are junk if we have humans exploring. Uh, it, it will, in fact, uh, have the potential to contaminate. Now, much depends on what the conditions are, which we don't know yet. But until we do know, my my take would be is like, hey, SpaceX, that's great, but hold off. You know, we we don't know what's there. But uh, I can I can top your other question. This is really going to be interesting. Is that should we decide find that there are refugia on Mars where water exists uh, under subsurface areas, and there still are, are relic populations of microbes in there? Can we tap that water? Is that ethical? Can we use it? Is anyone going to ask that? I mean, I doubt it, right? Uh, I think they will. I mean, because I think the, the push, isn't the push of ethics at that point always, I mean, the, the go-to is always, you can't stop progress. We're already there. We got to keep going forward. Yeah. I, I, I've heard that a million times. And a lot of times uh, the people that say that are the most conflicted and have true conflicts of interest. Uh, but that, that it becomes an interesting question of do we, if there is an active biosphere on Mars, even microbial, 
do we have the right to take water from it or to terraform the planet, as people will just cavalierly say and think that that, that could work. But there may be frozen stocks of water that uh, perhaps, like glaciers here, melt periodically and, and provide sustenance for others downstream. Maybe the same process occurs on Mars, but can we just take that frozen water for our own use and not worry about anything else? Can we destroy, alter the ecology? Can we share the planet? Is any of that ethical? I think I have an answer They're for just you, microbes. <laughs> Uh, I think we told you this, or Carol did, my wife Carol, but uh, certainly fits here and it'll be interesting for everyone, which is that she I once partook in an online Q&A uh, with Elon Musk. It was on io9.com, and it was around the time that he had just announced his manned space uh, mission to Mars. Uh, and at the time, um, there was, a, I don't know if it was Voyager, uh, one of our... Uh, unmanned satellite uh, one unmanned missions had just reached Mars orbit and was about to test for life on Mars. So the question I asked Elon Musk, because he was planning on actually colonizing, sending manned missions to terraform and colonize Mars, um, was if life is found on Mars, would that affect in any way your mission to Mars? And I remember I started early. Uh, I wanted to be one of the first people in line with that question. So I started early, and then um, I saw him answering questions. And they're all, of course, fan questions. People wanted to know the technicalities of how he's going to get this done, how he was going to uh, choose the people who would man this first mission to Mars. And he even floated the idea of a kind of a reality show, uh, choosing the people. The people get to choose who wins to go to Mars. And, of course, in my mind, I'm thinking it's a one-way mission because, you know, you got to terraform this planet for other people. Um, and he was as answering all these fan questions and, you know, enthusiastic supporters of this mission. And I, again, typed in my question because clearly he didn't see it because he was answering everybody else's questions if there's life found on Mars, would this affect your mission in any way? And he kept ignoring it, ignoring it. And I think I typed it in, like, because I kept seeing him answer questions after me. And um, and finally, I got annoyed uh, because time was starting to run out. And I think this, this Q&A might have been, I don't know, it was a half an hour, uh, something like that. And... Uh, so I wrote, why aren't you answering my question? Because I was really mad. And he literally answered. He actually answered, what is your question? Please, and I, so I retyped it. And um, he ignored it. And later on, I started scrolling to see if my question was there because, you know, did he not see it? And people were saying, no, I see your question. Uh, you know, so people were responding to me. He responded to my question as to why you were not answering my question, but he was not answering the question. I typed it in at least four to five times. And ultimately, the Q&A ended, and I was angry because I think he knew exactly what I was getting at. Because it wasn't even about 
advanced life on Mars or any kind of, it was any kind of life on Mars. Uh, and the ethical question of what right do we have to just go and start terraforming another planet and taking it over. <laughs> Make of that what you will. Okay. Shots over. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for playing. I mean, this is the wow. other problem oh, here, which is like, you know, in the hands of not society. I mean, I suppose NASA is also not in the hands of society, but there's at least, you know, if not the illusion, maybe something a little greater than the illusion of we have a voice in what we do there. But with a billionaire yes, who's just a dude who has already shown that he does not care if he launches satellites that block out the stars. Like, he had to be uh, told <laughs> that you be- you better make them at least look like stars or something. You better dim the lights on those satellites, something, so that we can still see the night sky. I mean, this is the mentality you're dealing with. How How is a species that allows this to be the forefront of going out into space ready to go out into space? I think you're um, absolutely on target here. I don't have an answer other than to say we need to to think right now uh, what can be done. Because one of the arguments, uh, as you said before, is often can't stop progress or, geez, we've got all this money and treasure and effort into it. And so, ah, you know, we don't want to stop now. Let's stop before we get to, to the Teleco Dam situation where you start to say, well, yeah, uh, you know, doggone it, dam's going to go no matter what, uh, has to die. Um, and, you know, I mean, these are, we always have to have trade-offs. There, there's no doubt about it, but not on Mars. Right. That, that's entirely our, our well, prerogative to decide right now. Do you think that this is an inappropriate dialogue among scientists? I mean, now that we see uh, at least enough connections or or enough people say they see enough connections in science even between um, Buddhist thought and physics, um, wouldn't that behoove us to ask if the physicists are – um, or if the scientific mind, the rational mind, that mind that goes out to inquire, if that is what the full, highest, whatever you want to call it, expression of, of humankind is. Because if it isn't, if we're willing to say that there's something else, and that, say, Buddhists understood or understand a piece of it at least, then wouldn't it behoove us to get there before we go out? I mean, do the inner work before we literally go do the outer work in outer space? Um, because again, it's this short sightedness of assuming that how we are right now, our internal being, which actually dictates how we are in the world and what we do with it, uh, the assumption that that's a okay right now and needs to go out there and, and propagate might just be wrong, right? What do, is there ever that conversation in science that you know of? No, uh, I would say, uh, I'm not uh, in the engineering crowd, you know, in the, the NASA crowd, but I think honestly, uh, we tend to be, uh, oh yeah, let's get this done. You know, we're action oriented. Uh, we, we can manage this. And so we, a lot of times uh, we end up on the abyss looking at it and then thinking like, oh yeah, um, okay, you know, here's how we get there without a whole lot of should we get there. Uh, and you can get into some interesting battles over these, these things. Uh, one of the, the things we've talked about a little bit is uh, genetic engineering, things like gene drives. 
and uh, and that same kind of uh, we've got it and and boy, Jeremy, some of these people really want to use them. Uh, and, you know, I, I I know the nature of this beast. You know, I've been there. I've seen some of this stuff. I know what I think some of them are thinking, and uh, um, it's not like hey, we should put this down until we're wiser. It's let's get going. Uh, so it, it is, you know, I mean, it is, it, these are things to, to, to think about. And, and I would say um, there's no way that we've come close to, to mastering uh, even ourselves in terms of, uh, you know, how we work and, and how psychology works in us you know so we're, we're definitely not that we are the end-all be-all uh let's uh, let's spread phase by any means in my opinion it's just uh, funny how we, we obviously feel differently we constantly pay lip service to it though right like there's always uh you know after a big tragedy or something the media has that moment of self-reflection of like what could we have done better oh i don't know your jobs there's that, and and I think that translates into science too, where because we have heard the dialogue about could it be that you know quote unquote spiritually uh, we're we're less evolved than we are technologically, um, so we give lip service to it that way in that sort of trite way, but then we never actually go to the next step with that, which is oh yeah, I guess we should figure that out, huh, <laughs> before we make another move. And oh well, yeah. yeah let me point out we, we've done the next step thing, my friend. Uh, if you recall, CRISPR technology to gene edit, uh, and we're thinking like, should we use it on humans? And then we had a, a scientist who just decided, yeah, I'm doing it, and and now we have a couple of uh, some CRISPR babies out there. Fate unknown. Okay, uh, and it turns out that the editing wasn't so precise, uh, that tool wasn't as precise as we thought. But the decision made by a rational, capable scientist was to uh, perhaps to mislead some of his colleagues, but to charge right ahead and do this unauthorized experiment on human beings. Human beings. And, and if you would think that we would have any empathy for something, creatures or whatever, it would be another human being. And this is what we got. You want them in charge? Yeah. Well, so do you think that that is a product of some, like, sociopathy? Or do you think that that is, do you think it's possible that a lot of uh, your colleagues uh, uh, have have drank their own Kool-Aid on the notion that, um you know, when they say something is perfected or in, you know, nearly infallible, 99.9%, that they actually believe it as opposed to what always happens, which is eventually it screws up and we all learn, oops, we're not infallible after all. Like, do you, do you think that that they really believe their own press on that stuff? And so they're like, eh, let's go ahead with it anyway. It's completely safe. Or do you think they're sociopaths? Because to me, it's like one of the two. Yeah, I wouldn't put it, I don't view it as quite that black and white. I, I think that um, deep down, they feel like they're going to do something good. And, and I'm reading into things now with people. I pray that that was the uh, motivation of the scientists who did the CRISPR babies. I'm not sure that it was, unfortunately. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say necessarily most of the folks that, that push this are, are um anything really even close to a sociopath. And in fact, some of some of the stuff that has been done with genetic engineering 
is counter to that because they've come out and, and tried to educate the public and also pointed out the weak points and have grave reservations about uh, modifying the human germline. So uh, there's, um, there's, a, there's a counterforce. There, there's hope here, Jeremy, and, and lots of it. But unfortunately, we do have some bad examples. And I wish that wasn't the case. Well, okay, so let me just throw in that if it's, if it's that they want to do good in the world and they see, they can look around them and see examples of just how that goes awry every time, um, then that good that they want to do is completely selfish and it's unconscious. <laughs> so I'm just throwing that out it's, there. Uh, there is no, I'm doing good in the world. You can, you may be deluding yourself into believing that, but if you just look around you, you know, the way you would with like religions, maybe, or, or any, you know, cults or anything else that you might look at and go, Oh, those people believe they're doing good in the world too, but look how it's not happening. Um, it goes across the spectrum of, of facets of our lives here. Uh, but unfortunately, I guess our technology has gotten to the point where we can do great damage in our denial of, of ourselves and our actual motives of just wanting to do something. I mean, I, I just, I guess I don't buy that. I don't, bu I don't buy the, that they want to do good in the world, even if they believe it, I don't buy it. You're, you're, Insightful. I mean, I, I understand. That's what I was going for, Tyler. Thank you. Now we can uh, move on. Um, okay. <laughs> well, but but let me argue. Um, yeah, I I I think Jeremy that that there. This is the classic double-edged sword, and that some of these things can be used for good or evil. You know, you, you take the example of the hammer. It's a great tool, but it also can be a weapon. And uh, we're trying. Scientists are trying to delimit. Uh, things with genetic engineering, particularly in human beings, so that it, it doesn't do uh, permanent damage across the generations. Uh, and that's the part of the of the how we and when we will uh, modify the human uh, germline, if ever, uh, legitimately. But he, I do believe that uh, a lot of the, the, the things that have been developed clearly do have immediate practical benefit. The, Downside is they could be twisted, and this is this is something as a whole. The scientific community has really not come to grips with, in my opinion, is that some of the, the very information that they publish is dangerous, and it has become more so dangerous in say the last fifteen years because our technological capabilities have given more people the ability, the capacity to take information and use it in ways unforeseen at the time that the, um, the technology was first developed. This is, this is quite a problem, how we are going to manage, not just for today, but projecting 20, 30, 40 years into the future as to what someone might be able to do with this. And that's why I say that the science, a lot of scientists who I think would scoff and say, oh, you know, come on, come on, you're, you're getting way out there. But the information, sequences, other things uh, that we have, uh, capacities now, have made the information itself potentially dangerous and will become more so in the future. How are we going to control that? How are we going to keep it to the right eyes? And a lot of my colleagues, I think, Feel like just throwing up their hands, saying, "No, no, publish everything. We publish everything. We're about free publication." 
I don't think we can be in the future. And I know that sounds strange uh, because that's the lifeblood of my profession is publication. We're going to have to clamp down on this and control it. Oh, good luck with so, that. Because I think the other <laughs> problem that goes with this and what you're really um, at the line of is the fact that we invent things and there's always a way for them to be used for ill, for violence, for whatever. And then we've got to invent a better version of that bad part of it because we know the bad guys are trying to invent a worse version. So we've got, and so we get in, that's how we get into these war of building bigger and better weapons, right? Is the notion yeah. that the bad guy is doing it. So we have to do it. And if you're, if you and the bad guy are working on the same project together, who's the bad guy? <laughs> right? So there's no such thing as the good guy or the bad guy. There's this mind that creates this whole rigmarole to go through and somehow keeps us asleep to the fact that this is even going on. Uh, and, and with this, we move forward. At least this is what I see. Um, I guess you don't have to agree with that, but, uh, but you're free to right now. Go ahead, Tyler. You agree with that? Well, yes and no. How about that? Uh, I, I, I understand. Someone someday uh, will agree with me. What? <laughs> I, I, I do understand your, your point about uh, sort of like what has become the mutual balance of terror in that we got to do this because they're doing it becomes uh, a true self-fulfilling vicious circle. And uh, it can be very hard to get away from those. I, I think that we maybe could. Uh, but one of the things that's happened is the democratization of scientific capability means that just as with um, space exploration, what we're doing is we're seeing the technological, enormously powerful technological capabilities filtering down into smaller and smaller numbers of people in organizations. In other words, uh, going from nation states to uh, super empowered corporations or even, God forbid, just individuals. And that's an interesting sort of uh, development with uh, unforeseeable, I guess, uh, outcomes in the future. So, so uh, I guess yeah. to wrap this up, and thank you for going a little long with me here, but uh, I guess what we're really saying is that the Greys are AI from the future, the Bigfoot are tardigrades from the future, and the Nordic blonde aliens are Martians, all from the future, coming back to now to see why they were invented. Time travelers, Tyler, is that what you're saying? Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we could look back through the, the writings of John Teeter and see if he gave us any clues. I don't know. <laughs> I, want, I, I, wish, I wish I were smart enough for that reference. Who's John Teeter? Isn't he the, the um, time traveler who called uh, coast to coast many years ago and, and pranked people about being a visitor from the future? Wow. You know that? No, I, don't, I didn't know that. I think so. You have to check with an authority like Banal. <laughs> Okay. That'd be Tim Banal. There's a, there's a different audience, Tyler. This is our undoing. They don't even want me to talk about this stuff. Oh. Oh, great. <laughs> yes. So you're right on target. This is this is a classic Jeremy Vaney move. Yeah, given what they don't want, yes. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's been enlightening all around, everyone. 
Um, so there's your sci-fi story for the day. Somebody go write that. Tardigrades are Bigfoot from the future. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, uh, let me ask you one. I guess, I don't know if you know this, but just curious. Um, if you know, do tardigrades exhibit behaviors like animals and people do? Like, would we, would we recognize ourselves in oh, them? Yeah. Huh. We might. Uh, they, uh, they lumber around. The, the name really <laughs> refers to slow movement, the, the tardigrade. But um, they, they kind of lumber around. They're not really fast, and, and they don't have to be because they all exist on uh, eating moss and, and other plants in their environment. But uh, they're kind of cute, you know, and, uh, and they will um, – they're kind of roly-poly. So when you, what's uh, really kind of fascinating is the diversity in just a little drop of uh, pond water, moss water in this case. Uh, Paramecia and others, they zoom around. They're doing 100 miles an hour, and tardigrades are just kind of rolling around, you know, okay, here we go. Uh, and I think that's how they got the name water bear. But do they have, like, social behaviors and things like this or habits? Oh well, they have uh, they have environments, and uh, you know some of them are killers. Uh, they uh, <laughs> they will eat other uh, hapless uh, water bear creatures, right. and uh, and I and I don't know what all else. Uh, most of them are built to kind of uh, suck stuff out of uh, like plant cells or whatever. Uh, but the uh, you know they they like all other creatures they have to find and maintain the right environment stay in the right spots find their food find mates all those things so they have the classic animal behavior and they are literally small animals they're just uh, small in scope and and they have a uh, language that's a good one uh, no idea huh okay no idea. Nonetheless, they will certainly understand certain things like this is too hot or that light is too bright. Right. Uh, you know, or the environment has changed uh, and they will uh, uh, kind of when stressed, they'll roll up into uh, the barrel form. They'll pull in their legs and uh, and sort of dehydrate the ton form. So what, what uh, there does... actually was this. this, this many... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. What's, what's your question? I was going to say, uh, what does this tell you about, I mean, this is something from, I'm to tell you this and I'm to tell you it is fiction, and actually part of it that you helped me write, that you wrote the uh, the chapter on ants in there. Uh, and uh, the idea that it doesn't matter how big or small an organism is, and it doesn't even matter what their bodies are composed of, the fact that we have shared behavior means that it's not contained in the brain. It's not contained in the body, this sense of consciousness. Uh, is, is that what that tells you? I mean, this is a microscopic creature that does things <laughs> that we recognize uh, because we do them too. So is, is that not overlooked as interesting? Well, it's, it's the commonality. I mean, we, the one thing about life on Earth, at least what we know about is that uh, we share stuff, and uh, and we share ancestry. So I'd say, yeah, it's not, not really that surprising when you consider that, we, in fact, we are all related. God only knows, if you believe there's a God, what we might encounter in the rest of the universe, because our experience and our imaginations are both pretty limited. And uh, quite frankly, uh, we could see this during the pandemic, Jeremy, that we always say science is self-correcting, which means we don't have all the answers. And it's a pretty brutal and sometimes agonizing process. 
But we just go along and then all of a sudden, whoa, what the heck was that? And lo and behold, new discovery. You know, so a lot of times that's new technology. That, that's how water bears and uh, the so-called infusoria were found is that we developed a microscope and suddenly we could see a whole new world that was right there the whole time. We had no idea. Hmm. So we've got a lot more uh, uh, things to, to learn. But anyway, I'd say, no, nah, it doesn't really surprise me. And as a dedicated materialist, I'd say, well, no, you know what? You got to have structures. And we share a lot of uh, cell and other um, structures you know, together. So it doesn't surprise me. Well, maybe that's that, another that conversation we, for another time. Your, your dedicated materialism. <laughs> can't help it. <laughs> got to. Uh, oh, you can help it. All right. And I will help you help it in a future episode. But for now, Tyler, <laughs> thank you for, for coming on and bearing with me. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's, you know, we could keep going. I could cuss out Starlink for hours. <laughs> um, I could keep the microphone going and, uh, I mean, the, uh, the recorder going. And if you, if you just want to cuss them out for a little while, I'll go do something. Oh, my God. I mean, the... the <laughs> The beep, okay. <laughs> that they can just go ahead and put up the satellites. Now they got permission. One one thing we have going for us is that we do have government regulation of this. But you know, most of our leaders prefer not to lead, and, and so we end up with uh, shooting satellites out there and then discovering there's a problem. Now, to their credit. The SpaceX people have agreed and they're working to make them less of a problem. But uh, some uh, professional astronomy, astronomy uh, I guess, programs are going to have to negotiate around these satellites. And we're just at the very beginning of these uh, mega constellation swarms. And, and so I, I hope that at some point uh, we do collectively step back and say, you know, the corporate goals are one thing and a laudable, not laudable. We're not we're not really running a judgment, but we may not want to do that because it may create other problems for the rest of the planet. OK, so uh, this this is where we are, though. And, and that's that's one of the, the things that kind of intrigues me about SpaceX and other uh, private organizations and sort of the democratization of technology is that it ends up in the hands of smaller groups of people. And, and so is that a good thing? Yes. Is it a bad thing? Simultaneously, yes. And we're, we're going to have to watch out for this. And I, I don't think my scientific brethren have quite woken up to that. And, and again, you know, right now they're all fighting the pandemic. Uh, but we do have a tendency to stay too narrowly focused. And the big picture items sometimes squeak past us. And we say, oh, that's, that's politics. Yeah. And you got to get into it. 